Welcome to Take a Wonder with Shebs, the show that features some of the biggest travel bloggers, TV and radio personalities and journalists from all around the world. Each show aims to take my guest on a wonder and uncover topics that may not be discussed on their platforms or in the media, whether that's the state of travel blogging and journalism as it is today, or whether there's enough diversity within the industry. Perhaps what impact technology and social media have had on content creation, or in general the impact of current affairs on the industry. I also try and find out the journey behind each individual's success, as this is more important to me than the actual travel. This episode aired on my YouTube channel on the 22nd of February 2021, and it's with Ala Dawoodi. As an American, Ala was meant to be with his wife and child in Palestine, but with political situations, he has been exiled from the country. He tells me his story. Good morning. Good morning to you too as well. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for joining me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Surely, I was born in Jerusalem. I uh, was raised in the United States since the age of two. I grew up primarily in the Bay Area also known as the Silicon Valley area, but I've also lived in Chicago, New York, and also the Southwest in Arizona and Nevada. Uh, but San Francisco is where I consider my uh, permanent home, basically. And now I've been in Turkey for almost seven months. What sort of uh, career are you sort of into? Is it, um, is it in the travel industry? I was actually a banker for almost 12 years. I worked for a lot of the largest investment banks, Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and AIG. After a 12-year stint in banking, I decided to start my own business and opened up a restaurant that I owned right. for five years. Yeah, it's a health, uh, health food-based eatery in San Francisco. Um, it's actually been uh, awarded quite a bit and uh, um, shared in publications such as magazines and other um, pertinent information. So I still own it, but unfortunately, due to the shelter in place, has been closed since March, as every restaurant has been in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So here we are now, just uh, navigating the pandemic as best as we can and, and trying to figure out what our next steps are, I guess. Born in Jerusalem, moved to the States. Was that, what, did your parents move for, for work reasons? It's a sensitive topic. It's a, uh, we're Palestinian. And Palestinians, unfortunately, don't have the same opportunities in Jerusalem as uh, the Israelis do. So for my family, it was basically in search of a better life. So they moved to the United States because there was much more opportunity and everybody was essentially looking uh, for the American dream, an opportunity for upward mobility. So it made sense for them at the time. My father's brother was studying at university in the United States. And uh, so he had some family there and decided to go ahead and uh, move out there and, and just try his luck in a new world, new country, and and see what it would do for him. Uh, have you had chance to travel? Oh yeah, extensively. I've honestly, I haven't. I can't. I could count them if I wanted to, but I probably have been to maybe seventy different countries. Um, I've even lived in other countries. I've lived in Tunisia. I've lived in here, Turkey. Now almost seven months. Uh, some places I would spend weeks at a time, maybe a month, two, three weeks. Even Palestine, I would go and spend about two months out of each year. Uh, I've done that numerous times. I've probably been back there 25 times. And then I would just travel throughout the region, throughout Africa, throughout Europe, uh, parts of Asia. So, uh, yeah, I've traveled quite a bit. Which one would you say then has been like more of your transformative uh, travel experience? Would you say that sort of changed? The way you view things in life? 
what I've learned is we're all interconnected. So there's not one place that really, I mean, they're all special truly in their own way. Mm. Uh, human beings live in different places for various reasons. And uh, we settle based upon comfort. So um, wherever you find, you know, a place of settlement, any city, any village, uh, there's a reason for that. And uh, some of those places are over, you know, millennium, some cases that, you know, 10,000 years old and what have you. So uh, transformative, I guess, for me is growing up in the United States, we grew up in a bit of a bubble. We think right. that we're the only developed country, that we're the supreme country. And that's unfortunately a lot of the brainwashing that happens there. And you also realize as you travel abroad that others believe that based upon uh, what they're being fed in the media or through just popular culture. Are you talking about American culture here? Correct. Americans in America think that, you know, it's something that's very simple and naive, but they, they don't realize that there's, you know, freeways and automobiles outside of, let's just say, America, Northern Europe. Uh, they, don't, they don't feel there's developed cities, developed roads, developed infrastructure. Um, unfortunately, popular culture or movies in the United States portray a lot of the world as um, undeveloped, um, archaic. Mm. So when I travel abroad for myself um, and see it for myself, some places are much more developed than where I, I grew up, not knowing that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it pops your bubble, essentially. But you also realize the reach of the soft power of the United States to realize a local artist, a musician per se, where I grew up and then he becomes or she becomes popular. You're listening to that person on a radio station, in a taxi, in a, in an air, like for instance, like Nairobi, Kenya, and you're thinking, Oh my God, you know, and they are singing it as though it is part of, uh, part of their culture. So that's interesting. That just shows how interconnected we are. Um, and just, how essentially, and you also find people from all walks of life in all nations in every country. So um, when you travel as well, the lessons that I've learned is, uh, you know, you would go to any, you can name any country, you'd go there. There's a large expat community. There's a lot of people who live yeah. there. People love it. You know, they've left their homes to be there. So um, for me, it just realizes that as though we think we're very diverse and there's a little bit of everything in the United States, there is a little bit of that everywhere in the world. You know, there's a microcosm of just a, a variety of people living in a city and, and making their way through life. Absolutely. You know what? One experience I can tell you. Um, so when I first uh, went to uh, Cambodia uh, about five years ago, um, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of their history because it doesn't get taught in our schools because it's not really... I mean, why would they teach you it? So a lot of the stuff that we learned was European history, sort of British history. So when you go over there and you realize, oh my goodness, you know, all these people were killed, you know, literally millions. That is a big island now. And you're like, wow. And then it really puts life into perspective. So you see yourself, oh, you know, I'm stressed about this, stressed about that. And then you realize, actually, why? Because some of these people were literally, you know, killed because they looked intelligent. And um, that is something that, you know, until you travel, you're not going to experience that. Class yourself as an American, Palestinian, or what would you, how would you sort of class you? We are, I mean, we are very much uh, Palestinian American. Um, my household is Palestinian. So, um, and Palestine also lives within us. It's in our food. 
in our language. It's in, um, you know, when we go to our weddings and our uh, special events, we use a lot of traditional clothing. So we carry it with us. And um, no matter if anybody tries to push it away, it's always very much there. And um, so it's definitely a part of who we are. American culture, honestly, is pop culture. So mm. it's great. But just like any pop song, you hear it enough, it kind of gets old and you, and you just, you know, there's nothing really of in-depth value there. It's just something that just sounded good for a little while. So um, that being said, you know, coming from a rich heritage, um, it's it's a part of your pillar of strength when you're in a world, honestly, in the United States where it's just about instant gratification, me, me, me. Um, certain values that you cannot find externally are found within the household and that's part of what makes you a strong individual to deal with all the challenges you deal with growing up in the united states um you know it's it's not nearly as as an easy of a life as some people can assume it is um it's just a matter of you know being able to cope in a society that leads the world in some of the highest rates of crime and depression and everything like that. And I only touch on that to tell people that it's just not a, you know, a, a road paved with bricks of gold and things are easy and everything just comes to you. It's just not the reality of the situation. With the opportunities that you've had though, because um, you were talking prior to company coming on, uh, you were part of the global entrepreneurship. A summit in Nairobi. Sure. Um, how did that come about? Definitely. So I have a friend that posted on her Facebook wall a program sponsored by the German government, actually called Ampion, and it's basically mm. amplifying pioneers. And they were holding. Uh, it was a two-week tour of Tunisia in North Africa. So yeah, it was a ten-day tour of North Africa where they essentially put us on a bus. And it's, I think it, I just, I'm putting, I don't know the exact number, but I just want to say it was probably about maybe 60 or 70 of us, of mm. which many were from overseas, from Europe and other parts of Africa. Um, and then the rest were local Tunisians. Uh, essentially, they drive us around the country and they want us to come up with technology solutions uh, for some problems that we come across. So... The group that I was a part of uh, was awarded. We were all the ha over half of us were internationals, and the other half were locals. Um, we got second place, and that led to being invited to the Global Entrepreneur Summit in Africa, in Nairobi, about a year after that. So that's what led me to go there, um, and I were was able to meet uh, some of my Tunisian counterparts, and I still communicate with them till this day. Um, I ended up actually because of that experience going back to Tunis, I think a total, I believe of five times, twice for weddings, um, other times just for vacations. I would connect with a lot of people there and, um, yeah, it led to an amazing experience of being able to go to Nairobi and, um, it was just a gambit of the whole world there. I mean, just to kind of give you an idea, I was in a very small room with the founder of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, Steve Case, the founder of AOL. Uh, Paul. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you get exposed to some high affluent individuals or high influencers or whatever the correct term would be. Mm. And you know, speaker was President Obama. Um, now they hold these annually, obviously not this year because of the pandemic, but it's just a great way to rub shoulders with um, basically movers and shakers on a global scale. So that's why it's called the Global Entrepreneur Summit. What did you learn from those individuals? Obviously, you said. Sure. Likes of Obama, you know, 
what would you learn from these types of people? They tell you their stories, their personal stories. You know, we see their successes, but they talk more about their failures and struggles to get there that we don't know about, that they don't discuss mm. in the media. So, uh, for instance, Airbnb, Brian Chesky said that his own sister thought, who would ever want to rent the space in somebody's home? Uh, how would they feel comfortable? And she was so resistant to it. And he just thought, okay, if I can't even convince my sister to want to use my service, how can I convince a stranger? Uh, but then somebody had to advise them that the personality type of the sister is what they call psychocentric. And she's the type to do it when everybody else does it. At first, she would be resistant. She's kind of wanting to follow the pack, and um, which he basically kept um, his vision and him and his uh, uh, small team essentially kept it going. If he basically just listened to his sister's resist, uh, re uh, resistance, there would be no Airbnb today. He would have given up and thought that there was nothing there. Um, so he explains that how difficult it was to convince his um, family circle about his idea, let alone investors and others, um, and how, you know, essentially they just wanted to give up, but they just kept the course and had to try different things. And fast forward all these years, obviously, it's grown into a multi-billion dollar company. Um, you know, Steve Case talks about um, AOL and how people were like, who's going to want to get on this thing called the Internet? And, back in the days of dial-up and um, essentially hearing that noise and, you know, it being annoying and what AOL meant and it was just, a ch you know, and all the criticisms around it at the time. Um, but needless to say, if you believe in what you're doing, you know, and you're going to actually have to pivot quite a bit in life, you're going to have to uh, adjust. But mm. uh, if you still believe in the core idea, you know, stay the course, you're going to get resistance. That's a part of it. And then, you know, I think what you realize is these people are very much human. You know, when you see them, I guess, spoken about, you may think that they're larger than life, per se. But when you actually meet them, you realize they're just they're human. I mean, this might be a given, but they, they're full of errors, mistakes. They, they, oh, yeah. many, they admit it and failures and, and things that you think would, you know, would be basically deal killers. But you know, they just got back up and, and just kept at it. And then sooner or later, they got the results that they wanted. And, and, and we know about them today, but their road wasn't paid with ease. It was paid with a lot of mistakes and errors and, and uh, even their own personal, um, you know, mom, uh, gut check moments of, you know, if they were really as confident as they were to follow through. So when you realize that, you know, if they can do it and they're admitting to you that they're full of, you know, contradictions a lot of times, there's no reason why you can't if you really, really want it. Exactly. Uh, and I think uh, persistence, I think, is really, really important in life. You know, you don't get to anywhere uh, without hard work. And, you know, I, I travel quite a bit now. But, you know, when I was leaving university, I thought it was all going to be easy for me on a plate. And then, you know, someone had to really, someone close to me had to tell me, listen, you're not going to achieve anything unless... You make you work hard, but the, along the way there'll be obstacles, um, there'll be failures, but that actually will make you better going forward. And uh, it's actually true. In terms of your um, journey, then you're currently in Turkey, as we said, and obviously I'm in Turkey at the minute. You've travelled all around Turkey, I believe. Is that correct? Correct. correct. I was writing Martin myself about a month and a half ago. Yeah. Um, so I've done three different road trips in Turkey. When I first got here, I came here with my wife. Uh, we rented a car. 
And essentially, we drove north to Ederne, which is very close to the Greek border, and then turned south, went to Chinakale, and went to all the various cities around the Aegean Sea, which is opposite, which is shared with Greece. Um, and then I got her to Izmir, and then because uh, my wife was pregnant at the time, thought that it would be best because of the pandemic. The pandemic was just starting, by the way, at least we know it started much earlier, but where it was getting a lot of the attention was around the March period. Um, at least in the United States, it was. Um, and then it started to affect other countries with the closures and the concerns. And that's when it was really beginning to kind of really take off. Um, I thought it would be much safer to get her back uh, closer to her family. I couldn't join her, unfortunately, because there's restrictions on um, internationals going to Israel. Although I was born there, they still see me as a foreigner. That's part of the political situation. But that being said, I, I dropped her off at the airport. She flew to Jerusalem. Initially, they were not going to let her in. Um, they wanted to deport her, although she's from there. Uh, but she put up a fight in the airport. You talk about persistence. She was persistent. And after three hours, granted her access because her family was outside waiting for her. Um, and they called it a humanitarian gesture because she was basically seven months pregnant. Um, so she got in and then I felt better that she, she's in a safe place. And then I continued on my journey. I went down to various cities like Ivalik, Marmaris, um, Dacha, uh, Antalya, Alania, um, Kash, you know, Kalkan, and there's all these various cities. And then I turned basically around the Mediterranean region all the way to close to where you are, Urfa. And Urfa is the birthplace of Abraham. And uh, the father, basically, or the great-grandfather of the three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, they come from his roots, his children, basically. So that's why they're called the Abrahamic faiths. Um, so I wanted to see, because in Palestine is where he is buried, but I was very intrigued to see where he uh, was born. And uh, we call it Turkey, but at that time it was not. Turkey is just a, a name that's less than a century old. Um, and visited where they say... He was born and it was also just a way of kind of you know having my own personal moment and um being spiritual just wanted to pay my respects and then uh, and then head back to istanbul which i did um and then i met a, there's another friend of mine that's a turk that actually wanted to take me more on a historical tour through central anatolia so we visited a lot of ancient roman cities like sagalosis sardis um Berg, uh, in English, they call it Pergamon, but here they call it Bergama. Um, so we went to a lot of ancient cities. Some of them are still intact. Um, Sagalosis is gorgeous because there's a fountain in the center of the city that's still working. Um, so you feel like you're in that period of time. Um, it's not like a lot of places are ruins, essentially. Um, so you just imagine what it was like for human, you know, uh, settlement was at the time. Some of these cities look like you can just pretty much, you know, live still live there uh mm. you know um and just to see the beauty and the rich history so much of it in this country there's too much of it you know um so much of the bible was written up here so much of the abrahamic fates essentially start up here um this is part of the fertile crescent um and this is you know they believe that they have found the oldest settlement to date of any human civilization in Gostepa. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a rich place. You see the modern, you know, the a modern city could be an hour away with high rises, freeways and everything. And then you just drive, you know, 40 minutes outside or an hour away. And then you see a city that's 10,000 years old that 
you get an idea how people used to live and how they live now and you see it in such a short distance, which is also quite intriguing. Because you just mentioned Gustepo. Uh, my plan is to go over there. I read into it as well that they were some of the first, you know, as you were saying, in terms of uh, creations, uh, someone showed me a picture the other day about uh, there was a picture of a head with like a, um, a snake as well. Um, so there's there's so much history that I'm finding when when before I came to to Turkey, um, people always say, "Oh, go to Istanbul." You know, you got your resorty areas like Bod- uh, Bodrum, Marmaris, uh, but there's so much more. You, all you have to do is just take a drive and come to the area where, where I am. And it's just full of rich history, and it's just incre- it's incredible. I mean, the buildings here. I mean architecture like this you don't get it anywhere these days you know to, to have a building like this now will cost you millions and millions so it's, it's just it's just incredible to to be in this country yep it's a it's a special place indeed and um especially i think both of us are you, you come from is it the united kingdom yes that's correct yeah so it's for anybody that has access to Western currency, like the United Kingdom, the United States, it's really inexpensive here. Um, you know, for essentially a five-star meal that I've experienced, it costs you what it would cost for a little bit more than what fast food does in the United States, yeah. just to put it in perspective. Um, and then, right, yeah, where you are, you're essentially in the Fertile Crescent. You're right in the heart of the Fertile Crescent. And it's just in every history book. That's where human beings, as we know so far, because history is always obviously developing and there's new finds every day, is where they begin to settle and build cities. They go from hunters and gatherers to actually building buildings and civilizations and laying laws and what have you. Um, and you can find much of, you know, the artifacts and the British uh Museum, the Louvre in France and also uh, Germany and throughout, obviously, the museums here in the country. Um, but where you are in the south, um, it's highly, it's very, I mean, some people might just call that Syria North because it has that feel of what Syria is, like Mardin, Orfa, from the architecture, the appearance. Um, so for many people up in Istanbul, that's just another world. They use different spices in their food. They use... Mm. Even their language is sort of a melange of Arabic, Turkish, and Kurdish. Um, and then it's just uh, the, even the features of the people. It obviously affects, you know, um, in terms of what their exposure was and the various empires that went through those areas um, that did not reach up here yet. Maybe some people obviously moved up here in modern times, but in the ancient times, those cities were under a different rule. Um, and now they're part of the Turkish Republic. But yeah, I mean, they're definitely special. Um, Martin is gorgeous. I loved it. You know what I mean? It's just you know, that hillside looking down. You can go to some of those rooftops and even at night when it's lit up. Um, oh, yeah. There's that goal. There's that glow, you know, and uh, especially when we were driving through and uh, there's some patches of darkness, you know, between the cities at night. And then when we pulled into Martin, it's just like pulling into an amusement park, essentially. So, but in a good way, not like bright, you know, neon. It's more of just like this rich gold, this golden color. I'm expecting Aladdin to pop up from nowhere. And uh, it it is that, that sort of feel to it. And you're like, it can't be real, but but it it is, it really is. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not far away from where the, you know, Shahrazad, the Arabian, what it's, it, you know, they're old Persian stories. They're called Arabian mm. 1001 Nights. But um, 
Martin was part of that civilization. So it, it very much could take there. I mean, nowadays they say it was like Baghdad, but um, Baghdad is a relatively modern city um, when it was first built. Um, so it, it didn't take place there. It took place more so in like uh, the ancient Persian Empire, at least the story, the theme behind the story. So it very much could take place in a place like Morden. Can I just take you back to something that you said earlier about um, about your wife being in, in Israel, or oh, Jerusalem at the minute? Um, yeah. So what's the situation? Because you're saying that you can't go yourself. Honestly, and it's a charged issue, but it is what it is. Uh, Palestinians, unfortunately, get the short end of the stick when it comes to the situation over there. Um, the tapestry of our, you know, people want to kind of place us in two boxes, but Palestinian history is very old and ancient. And a lot of Palestinians have Jewish roots, Christian roots, Muslim roots. You know, I mean, essentially we're a melange, we're a mixed people. Um, but unfortunately, the politics right now, they are favor one group over the rest. And uh, essentially for me, although my wife, just to show you, I mean, she's 29, she's lived there 25 years. She's even worked for the Israeli government uh, with autistic kids. Um, this is a person that, you know, paid all her taxes. Obviously, you know, the deduct paid her taxes, was a, uh, a good citizen, um, was everything that anybody would be a model citizen is. And she simply wants her husband with her, who's from there, who has a lot of family there. Um, zero problems with authorities or any, there's no reason to deny us. And they still, just for the sake of, we're told, and I, I hate to use the word, but they're just being jerks, denied us, denied our ability to be together. Um, so yeah, as, and then with that being said, I'm being shared articles by, uh, others showing that Americans are getting exceptions because their family, uh, members serving in the Israeli army and they want to visit them or they have, um, some, you know, a home there or something that they can get an exception, although the circumstances are not, um, emergencies or anything like that by any measure. So that also leaves a bitter taste, unfortunately, in your mouth, because you're looking for sort of the human side of people and uniting a family should be anybody's objective and uh, putting yourself in their shoes um, is the first thing. And, you know, a family should be together, especially while a child you know, was being born. So I honestly, my, my son now is almost two and a half months old. I have yet to see him. I see him growing up through videos and pictures. And I haven't seen my wife in seven months. Um, U.S. passports. My my wife's also an American citizen. Um, passport services are closed all over mm. the world um, unless you can get an emergency. In in Israel, they only offer. Um, I think it's twice a week, a few hours a day, and we're being told that there's a huge backlog. So um, we think you know we want to be on top of the list, and they tell us you know just you're going to have to wait your turn and. Um, one week becomes one month, becomes two months becoming, here we are seven months later, still, you know, not getting any closer. So even if we wanted to unite outside at this point in time, we cannot, or she cannot leave the baby. Not that we want to leave the baby, but, um, so she can come, but you know, she's got a young child that uh, is entitled to, and the Israelis won't grant him travel documents. Right. So he can never be an Israeli city. It's just, it's nearly impossible though. He was born there. And, We'd be united here, but the fact that he's not, 
tells them that he needs up to two years just to be granted residency. And then after that, he can apply, oh, they, you know, the parents can apply for what is like temporary travel documents, but they're not like permanent, you know, citizenry. And that residency could be taken away at any time. And that's what happened to me. I, I was born there. My parents decided to immigrate to the United States. Uh, and then they immediately they expired, or they call it, yeah, they expired my permanent residency. So now when I go there, I go under the U.S. passport as a tourist and having to leave in three months, uh, in 90 days. And, um, and it's a huge ordeal to try to get that residency back. Although, you know, they know I'm from there. They know I was born there. They know my family's lived there for uh, at least eight centuries. It's just they don't want us there. And it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And people can excuse that kind of behavior and actions, but it's unexcusable. Um, and, you know, it affects everybody in different ways. For me, it, you know, the reason we wanted to go there is my wife was pregnant. Her parents lived there and we wanted family support. Um, and she could use family support during the, you know, that first um, year of raising a child. So, um, it's just, you know, it's been its own challenge. Now this pandemic has been a challenge for everybody, but it's also being used as an excuse by some, but that same excuse is not being practiced, you know, um, universally. So that's why it's hard to accept why another, for instance, here, like last week, they let a bunch of evangelicals in to go work on kibbutz, which are like socialistic farms. So I can't be with my family, but a group of evangelicals coming from the United States just recently mm. are, are able to get laid in to go work on a farm. And that apparently is acceptable. I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, obviously, people in your situation will know, you know what you've gone through. They're probably going through it themselves. Have you tried lawyers? Does that work? I, I, one of her close friends actually works for the interior ministry over there. She's Palestinian, um, but she, um, some Palestinians are able, just like my wife, to get jobs. You know what I mean? Um, and she works in the interior ministry and her husband is an actual attorney that deals with what the, you know, immigration issues and issues just like this. And essentially he's, you know, unable to do anything. So um, they're essentially telling us that, you know, it, we chalk it up as part of the Palestinian experience that, you know, it's hard, it's horrible, they don't want to let you in, but, you know, welcome to the club. You know, there's Palestinians that are getting their homes demolished, there's Palestinians that are being deported, so it's not as though it's just an isolated incident. It's just one of, you know, thousands of incidents that happen a day that just kind of, you know, uh, I don't know if it's to puncture the spirit or effects, but it's just, it's, it's the, it's the story. It's the Palestinian story, unfortunately. And we're one of the tapestry of so many stories of people that just deal with hardship. Um, we don't get to choose what we're born. We, we have no say in who we are and where we come from. It just is what it is. And just the fact of the matter that we were born there, we're from there, and we just don't happen to practice the religion of the ruling party. Um, essentially, we were then just, you know, treated as, I don't want to even say second class, but I'd say third or fourth class residents, not even citizens, because they don't grant me citizenship. And my wife was trying to get citizenship. And even though she worked for the government, you know, in, in um, 
did everything you're supposed to do. It's just so difficult to just get anywhere. She tells me that she goes to the interior ministry and the ministry and they're just extremely rude with her. And for instance, now she's trying to get, um, uh, her residency wasn't, uh, taken away. It, it essentially went into sort of, a um, dormant basically so she had to go and renew it and she went to the interior ministry on the date they told her to go and the lady's response was her you're not, you're not here to live here and she's like i just had a child i'm home do you really think if all places i'd want to be here right now away from my husband if mm. I, it just shows like you know instead of being supportive and helpful and a humanitarian those small gestures they're extremely uh cold and um Diabolical, and, and there's just nothing to celebrate. You know, it, it's just a sense of um, I hate. I mean, the word is probably hate. It's just you, you're treated as though you're hated, and you just you, it's it obviously psychologically affects you, knowing you're in a place that a lot of people don't see your existence there. They don't, they don't acknowledge you. They don't want to help you. They just see you as sort of somebody to work against. And, that's part of it. So for me, you know, yeah, to answer your question, we did have lawyers within the country. Um, we have people that worked within the ministry, but they are not the decision makers. And the decision makers essentially said, no. what are you going to do? You know, no, 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 no. And we've tried several times and we've gone through embassies here, embassies abroad, and also the interior ministry. And another thing that kind of bothered us too is a lot of times they would get our hopes up and say, oh, no problem. You know, we'll get him in. He'll be here in a week. Don't worry. A week would go by and they would act as though the conversation was never had, you know. Mm. So then it's, you know, for a couple of days, you're a bit excited. It's happening. But then you realize, oh, nothing's happening. And then later on, somebody uh, tells her, hey, I know somebody um, come in. She goes in and she's thinking, OK, they're going to work on it for us. And then, you know, a week or two goes by. And again, it's as though, oh. Oh, we can't do anything. Right. Yeah. If anyone's got any sort of information or will be able to help, uh, please get in touch with Allah. Um, you know, it, it, we'd like to see him reunited with his wife and, you know, not being able to see his son either. So uh, please do get in touch. Um, I mean, I don't know what else to say apart from I'm really sorry to hear this. It's just. A really sad situation and people ask me you know this is all about travel and stuff but actually this is part of life and travel you know sometimes you can go into places and i've seen it myself where people are stuck and you know they're isolated or they just can't get out this is this is part of life and travel and um i said to you it's really sad to hear and uh we wish you the best of luck and uh, please keep us informed in in what 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 goes on. Before I let you go, your jobs is that would your plan once you've got everything well hopefully things get will you move back to the States and go back to San Francisco? I thought about that, but the situation right now in San Francisco is still uh um internal dining is not allowed. A lot of okay. I, my, my restaurant was based right in the heart of downtown in the financial district. And I have people now have been told that they're going to be working remotely at least 2021. So many of the buildings that you know, where all my customers were based are basically empty. So I ask a lot of people back in the Bay Area, how is San Francisco? There's an exodus actually outside of the city, which is fortunately pushing rents down from being the most expensive city in the year, uh, in the at least in the United States. 
year over year. Um, now it's um, they're saying they're saying it's just becoming a homeless encampment. It's becoming a ghost town. Very few people go there. Uh, getting on the subway to go in San Francisco, you usually have to stand up. Uh, space was limited. Now they're saying you can. You're basically getting on a relatively empty train when you go in. Um, so that being said, um, as I debate to go back, a lot of people tell me that businesses are shutting down in large numbers. Restaurants are closing their doors. Even large ones that have a lot of cash on hand are unable to sustain themselves. Um, what was supposed to be for a couple of months has now become seven. Um, and a lot, and you know, they got some grants and what have you from the government, but it's just not enough. It was enough to sustain for maybe two months. Seven months later, do them, you know, it's, 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 they burnt through that cash essentially. And they're mm. talking about second round and what have you, but all of this is loans. And, uh, and we don't know if businesses are unable to be open. How are they exactly going to make the money? For us? You know what I mean? So it's a challenge and it's a debate that I have here. Turkey, I'm even looking at opportunities, maybe opening up something because although there's economic issues here, the country is, is pretty much open. Yeah. And, uh, United States, California, yeah, a lot of it's still very much closed with no prospect. There's talk of it reopening, but there, uh, I've been told by, I had a conversation with my accountant yesterday that there's a lot of people who opened up and just closed their doors two months later because there was just, you couldn't cover your expenses. I can't figure out why the states have not controlled it. Obviously, a lot of people can't travel. No, it's it's the way I, I projected as I grew up in the United States. Um, I appreciate my time there. You know, but it's like a bully that everybody thinks is so powerful until somebody actually hits them and then they fall down. So the United States is not nearly as powerful. It's powerful in that people perceive its power and allowed it to behave in any manner it wants to behave. But a lot of times what destroys somebody is from within. And you can see the structural weaknesses in a matter of months. Externally, the world saw the United States as a... a quasi-perfect place. And I dealt that in my house. Oh, you're American? Oh, I want to go there. Lovely, powerful, great. All the good, all those things that you want to hear. Uh, but at the reality, I almost felt sad because these people have been brainwashed to believe something that is not true. I tell them, you know, what nation leads the world in incarcerating its own citizens? They talk about the land of freedom, yet the United States leads the world in putting people, its own citizens in jail that are still there. So it doesn't live up to a lot of the propaganda. It doesn't live up to a lot of the soft power projection. We're really good at um, exporting our pop culture. We're, but if you listen to the lyrics of our music, it shows you what kind of culture we really are and what we actually were. If you take the time to actually hear what, we're, what kind of message we're beaming out to the world, you'd realize that we're not that good. They wanted to tell us, no, but America's the greatest place on earth. Well, is it? Is it really? Is it really? And you know, but now that they're seeing in just a number of months, it didn't take years, decades, centuries. It took a few months to show structural weakness that we had. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there. And uh, it's been great chatting to you. Um, great hearing your story. Uh, as I said, we wish you all the best in terms of um, your situation with your wife. Uh, as I said to you, if anyone has any information, can help, please do get in touch. But uh, thank you again for coming on. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Likewise. Have a great day. Enjoy yourself. You Safe travels. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It was a fascinating talk, and I can tell you now that Alice still hasn't been united with his wife or son as the struggle for him still continues. 
If you'd like to get in touch with Ala regarding this or anything else, you can do so by his Instagram under the handle at Ala underscore Duwadi. That's it for Take a Wonder with Shebs. Don't forget to follow me on all of my social media platforms. Until next time, bye for now.